Today, we have Tara Poole from the city of Ballarat's Creative Cities Strategy. Hello, Tara. So thank you. So Tara, thank you very much for joining us uh, from the end of your day and the beginning of my day. And um, yeah, I mean, it's very kind. There's lots and lots of things I want to ask you. But firstly, I'd like to ask you a bit about, could you tell me about Ballarat? Tell me where you are now. And I remember you telling me the word, the word that this is a Goldilocks kind of place. And I'd like to hear more about that. Tell me about that. I can tell you about Ballarat. Ballarat is absolutely a place of um, sort of dichotomies, I suppose. Like we have come from a a long tradition of being based and connected to the Wadawurrung people who are the First Nations of um, this particular region. Australia, I don't know if you know, is absolutely jam-packed with hundreds of different countries within a country um, and we sit on Wadawurrung land. Um, and some of the Jaja were on land as well. And these are the First Nations people, and they have over 10,000, oh, 65,000 years worth of connection to the the land, the air, the waterways. Um, and Ballarat is one of those places which was um, discovered, settled by white people, um, because, of course, gold. And gold, being um, the mad thing that it is, attracted thousands of different um migrants to the city, whether they're all in the, all on the hunt, they're all, and everyone was desperately looking for, you know, their get rich quick scheme. So nothing had really, nothing's really changed since then at all. And some people found it actually for a very brief period of time there, Ballarat and Melbourne were the wealthiest cities in the world because of the gold that they were actually extracting out of the soil. Um, and of course, that particular process is incredibly disruptive. You've got things like mercury being used. Um, you've got mullock heaps, which are the actual waste heaps that are produced as a result of gold mining. But what you actually had was, you know, tens of thousands of people just descending on what is what quite a fragile ecosystem. We actually have very fragile soil systems, very fragile wildlife systems. And you've got tens of thousands of people just descending and trying to survive. So um, Ballarat has grown from this sort of idea of a complex hotbed of just people just crashing into it. And some people leave, a lot of people leave, but a lot of people stay. Um, that On the back of that, we actually ended up with um, groups of people who became quite established quite quickly. So the city became wealthy very, very quickly. We have heritage facades and buildings that went up around about the 1860s, 1850s and 70s. 50s to 70s, incredibly beautiful buildings that went up. Um, and, you know, the 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 gallery and the libraries were heavily invested in and there were lots, there was lots of largesse. Um, and what we ended up with was just this incredible city that now we are an hour from the main city of, of Melbourne. So we're a commuter, a commuter ride away from, from Melbourne. But what Ballarat has struggled with is like most regional cities in, in Australia have actually struggled with is just flight. People have actually left from the the cities to actually, you know, go to the looking fine work. So people have moved on, and our city has emptied out from the from the middle outwards, like most other regional towns have. But what's really special about Ballarat is that even though it's emptied out, and even though it's taken these hits like time after time, and even dating you know, even more recently back to the two thousand and eight GFC, because Ballarat is so sort of um, in a way, it's enclosed. It's enclosed by hills. It's also, you know, so its own topography encloses it. Um, but you've also got 
uh, agriculture, you've got health, you've got education, you've got actually everything already inside the city. So it can weather storms quite well. So the GFC didn't take too much of a knock out of it. And that's why we call it the Goldilocks. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. So it's actually in the middle of everything. But that actually makes it a really attractive city to test things on because you can see whether things are going to actually, it's a microcosm of a much larger city. We've got our um, creative areas, we've got our manufacturing areas, we've got our less wealthy areas, we've got our extremely wealthy areas. And we have it all within almost a 20 minute crossing across the entire city and you can be pretty much out the other side. Give us another 10, 15, 20 years, That'll change. We're actually, you know, we are the outskirts of Melbourne and one of these days soon we're probably going to end up becoming another suburb. But um, in the meantime, there is this very strong identity that's been created and born inside Ballarat. So people are very proud to be, you know, a uh, Ballafornian or a Balloration, depending upon what team you bat for. Great. So um, I'm, not, I'm not originally from Ballarat, so I find it fascinating. And then for you, I remember you, you telling me that, so as you first came to Ballarat, there was, you know, it was a gallery and, and it was things about your practice and your own work that brought you there. And then I know now you've become a public servant. And the thing I'm going to ask you about in a bit is that particular project and how you're helping to facilitate that. But tell me a bit about that journey of how you find yourself, you know, with a local authority um, and also running your own practice and a venue at the same time. There are many things happening here, many hats. Many, many things, many hats. Well, I think what I love about Ballarat is, and again, it's this Goldilocks idea, is that um, if I tried to invent something like this in a larger city, like anywhere in the world, if I tried to do it in London, it would be lost. Like I don't have the uh, traction there. I don't have the finances to actually, you know, I suppose live my best life. So, um it wasn't a plan. That's the other thing too. It was completely accidental. Um, Travelling through Ballarat and actually stopping to go and visit the, the big regional art gallery and wandering around town, my myself and my other half actually stumbled down a city street and actually looked up at a what was what we realised later was actually the very first Masonic temple in the city in, in, in based in Ballarat and um, it was for sale. And I was like. Well, you know, we're trying to be grown-ups and invest in in, in investment property and, and we're finding it so soul-destroying, this whole idea of trying to buy an apartment and be real about our investments, um, that we walked in and I just went, oh, I can do something with this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, I, I, and I need to really stress, I'm not a gallery owner, I'm not a venue owner, I just am someone who likes to create new things and, and build them up and then do something more with them. So I like to make and I like to build. So um, yeah, we we invested, which is a very loose term, because um, we spent then probably the same amount of money again, just making it habitable um, in this incredible building, which costs the same as an apartment block, apartment um, an actual single apartment, not a block, a single apartment in the in the city, I was actually buying this edifice. And it, it's a daunting facade with columns on the front and huge rising ceilings. And I just walked in and went, of course, you lost my heart, completely naive. Um, decided that I'd always wanted to open a gallery, so why not open a gallery? How hard can it be? Actually, really hard. Uh, and then, you know, in order to make people come to your gallery, what do people need? Well, they like alcohol, so let's put a bar underneath. And how hard could running a bar be? 
harder than running a gallery. So, um, but equally, they were successful. They're still going, which is fantastic. Thankfully, not by me, um, but I was still own the building. So we still have this. I, I was then introduced without a plan into what is this incredible microcosm of what is the city of Ballarat. It's quite a, um, it's quite an eclectic location. It's, it just, you have your conservative groups of people who've been there and they've been born, they were born there and they've inherited land. And so therefore there's the landed gentry, I suppose. Then there's people like me, the blow-ins, and it'll be at least another couple of centuries before I'm accepted as a local. Um, and then of course you've got First Nations and you've got migrants. And what Ballarat is, I like to call it as a little bit like a sophisticated stormwater grate. Literally people travel over the top of it and some, some of the chunks stop. And I'm one of those. So I stopped actually at the stormwater grate and I decided to make this my home. And I think that's the what's really impressive about Ballarat is that you can dream big. Like it's I you can actually craft something from the ground up. You can invest your heart and soul in it and you can make something that people pay attention to. And I noticed that quite quickly. But I also noticed just how empty the city was. Like that flight that I was discussing with you earlier was the the tragedy of um, these heritage cities is their emptiness, the fact that they are just echoing and hollow. And whilst beautiful to look at, we had become much more of a sophisticated film set and we are used, Ballarat is often used as a film set. Um, but the life, like the necessity, like the space is not needed because people have moved on to other ways of doing things, whether that's into the tilt slab um shopping centers or the multiplexes they've, they've that's a choice that they've made because it's convenient and it works for them but that leaves our city empty from the center so um i took it upon myself to start charting which of the buildings around me were were empty um and mapped it all out because nothing i like more than a nice map to graphically show you um and decided i wanted to do something about it because you can actually make a difference in these in these regional cities you can actually express yourself and find your tribe and connect with people that who are interested in doing the same thing and you can actually make a difference because it's small enough it's like it's big enough to to um have all the functions and the services but small enough for you to actually make a difference um so we created what we now call Ballarat Evolve. That was a couple of years ago. And that's now activating, I hate the word, is it a verb or a noun? I could never make sure. And I never tell whether activate is a verb or a noun. Um, but what we're trying to do is actually, we talk to landowners and we actually ask them whether they will allow us the opportunity to put a creative industry or um, an artist or a maker into their spaces in return for a, um, a small contribution on but from the actual um, artists themselves so we facilitate that that sort of connection um and just today i've actually had a phone call from one of the candidates we've had in one of the locations for 12 months and she has graduated enough to feel confident to take out her own retail lease in another part of the city so i run around air punching <laughs> thinking yes this is actually you can actually do this in smaller cities because it actually it's tangible and you can see real change. Yeah. Um, when you did your first map, when you did your, Tara, when you did your first map, how much void did you see? I mean, how many vacant spaces did you, 
are we talking about? It wasn't scientific. It wasn't scientific. It certainly, uh, I wish it could have been, but I was only at street level and it was only the ones I could see that were empty. So I couldn't really tell the ones upstairs, but uh, it was a significant, I used red dots, um, yeah. dust and, and the CBD and I did a 10 minute walk, uh, you yeah. know, in a certain zone and every day I did another street. Um, I would say that there was a good third of the spaces at that time, two and a half to three years ago, was it were empty. Um, and of course it's devastating. Like it's, uh, when I first bought our property, my first question was to the council. When I was planning on buying the property, my first call was to the council to ask for simple things like, have you done foot traffic reports on who's, who's using the city streets? Uh, what are, where are they traveling to? What are they doing? Um, and my, the response from the council at that particular point in time was, that's a really good idea. We should really do that. But no, they hadn't done any of that kind of work. There was sort of limited understanding as to how people who lived in and used the city, how they were using it and where they were travelling to and how long they were spending there um, and the sort of lack of interest in finding out. So that's actually for me one of the trigger points is that without that flow of people, without that reason for going into somewhere, um, of course, it's slowly like a hole in a bucket. The people are just going to leak out to somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, my next move was then to, you know, I, I indirectly found myself becoming a public servant because I'm thinking we need to make some changes. Yeah. It's interesting, that, isn't it, that, that noting that kind of there needs to be those points of ignition, but also, you know, I remember you talking to me about, you know, how you keep that going. And I think so many of the things you begin to touch on there are you know a root and branch look at the fact that there's there's questions about infrastructure there's questions about design there's questions about licensing there's questions about planning there's questions about, i mean it is the whole you know cluster of these elements together and that's just getting it started but then also there's the fact of how on earth do you keep it going and i think i'm really interested in that particularly noting the story you said of the lady who'd you know phoned you up and said she wanted to take a bigger space i mean people talk about that as incubation don't they that you know we've we've got one start but then we've got that next step which is often the hardest bit so tell me a bit about how do we keep it going what what's the example there and, and maybe now we need to sort of introduce the bridge street mall because i know that that's the critical sure. destination here that even though you were looking root and branch and doing a map of many dots there was one particular place wasn't there that you wanted to focus on and begin tell us a bit about that well, I think that um, we could have we could have selected any location really, and and I think the the Bridge Mall is one of those ones which it's um it is incredible like all the other locations in Ballarat is incredibly historical. So this particular location brought together East and West Ballarat in the time of the Gold Rush, and uh, subject to flooding, so it was you know unsurprisingly called the Bridge, um and so a bridge was built over the river. And it's like one of these nexus points that for a long time the people had a reason for going there. Um, but as things have happened and as, as we, our lifestyles have changed and we've become more sedentary or we're based in suburbs, et cetera, we don't have a need to go to the fishmonger. We don't have a need to go to the butcher. We don't have a need to go to the bootmaker, you know, of which there was about 15 different bootmakers along this one stretch originally. So, of course, we can't replace a bootmaker with another bootmaker today. It's just not going to make any sense. But what we need to be looking at is the reasons for why people are actually going into the, the centre of the city. And we're seeing this resurgence as we've gone from, you know, 
using the centre of our towns to now being disparate and being on the suburbs and now seeing a rejuvenation at some of the hearts of our cities as particularly which has been brought along by the pandemic. But back to your question about how do you actually ignite and then also keep things going. If I had the answer to that, I would be a multimillionaire because actually I, I think it's as personal as each of the practitioners are. If anything about my experience at Ballarat Evolve has actually taught me is that particularly now, so many people spend, you know, come to us and sort of say things like, I'd love, I need a space. All I need is for you to give me the keys to a space and do not ask me to do anything more, but just give me the keys to a space. But when you interrogate that further, you actually realise well, you can't be in the space more than, say, three or four hours and probably generally on a weekend because you're clearly off doing other work to pay the rent in your own home and accommodation. So, you know, actually, you're not really activating the space. You need something else. Um, the You like the idea of a space, but it's not the answer. And often we have a lot of practitioners who come to us and say, actually, it's only a space that I need. And nine times out of ten, we have, after we've sat with them, we realised you probably need something else first or the, the kind of space you need is going to be a different one to the one you're imagining. Um, so it's so tailored. Like The reasons why these things sort of like village squares or, or hubs sprouted in the first instance because they served a direct need, like people needed to go there. So I, I rather than try and force something, you, you have to recreate the you don't recreate the wheel you actually reinvent history um and what we're trying what i'm trying to do is yeah ignite stuff but the keeping alive of that flame is really high intense it's it's just a hugely time resource heavy money heavy because you are nursing and nurturing fledglings through their process most of them um most of them do survive but they the phone call I had today, a woman who decided, yes, I'm ready for a retail space, also confided that she had no idea a year ago when she'd asked for her first licence and we managed to get her into a shop front, had no understanding about how the next 12 months were going to pan out. And if she had her time again, she probably wouldn't have done it because it was so overwhelming, like the pressure of being in the space 24-7, the pressure of being a retailer as well as being a creator, that's a huge dilemma for people because, you know, it's you know as many times as you're spending at the front of the counter, you're not actually making the product. So um, as much as I like the idea, it's a very romantic one about creative industries being like the, the salvage, how they'll be, they'll be salvaging the centre of our cities, I think we need to think really carefully about we have a duty of care to those creative industries as well to ensure that they're finding their right sustainability model to help them and also uh, allow them to shine and then also to make sure there's a pathway so they don't simply get big enough and then flee to somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So it's not set and forget. Yeah, and I guess also with that, there's, there's, there's a clustering there too, isn't there, that to help with this particular transition, well, I, I mean, just I suppose to create the conditions with which one can do well and get on with things, then you're thinking about then who's the proximity, the adjacencies of these different groups 
and how they better might work together. But you're trying, I suppose, not to over-curate. You're facilitating on their terms rather than saying, right, this will always sit next to this. Is that right? And I guess that, that balance of facilitation and curation, curation must, must be, be a very, very hard, hard one, I imagine. Yeah, well, we don't have populations, so we don't have the luxury often of curation. Sometimes, you know, you'll have somebody who is an amazing bootmaker or leather worker, um, but they don't have any affiliate suppliers. We're not big enough to actually sustain a supplier business. And we actually, there's a knock-on effect, actually, particularly with leather. We don't have the leather production or the quality of leather in, a, in the country, so it has to be imported. So it's it's a... It's so simple to be thinking that it's just, as, you know, we're going to support the creative industries. And at the moment, it's a bit of a catchphrase, particularly in Australia as well. It's like, you know, all hail the creative industries. They're going to deliver us the, the new salvation. Um, I don't think it's as simple as that. I actually think it's, yes, viewing local precincts, particularly, you know, the city that we have, we can actually probably look at Bridge Mall as being almost a precinct into itself, unto itself. But then we actually, we must, must, must look at where, what that role that, precinct plays in the whole city you know and actually looking at traffic looking at how people move looking at how people are you know predicting potentially how people are going to actually use the city into the future and then looking at um it's having a such a zoomed up view it's actually trying to juggle all the balls in the air at the one time um and then yes as you say going right down to the to the minutiae and saying is this individual ready can this individual tolerate 12-month license if they do stay here, what kind of affiliate organisations would they work best with? Do they need mentoring? Do they need assistance in handling their tax affairs? As well as actually having the ability to zoom out and say, Bridge Mall is going to be a location of the future of trading. Like It's always been a space to trade, always been bartering, swapping, selling, exchanging, retail. It's always been that. What does the future of bartering, exchange, retail, trade look like? You know, what jobs are going to be in this industry in 50 and another 150 years' time? So, yeah, it's having to think around the problem not only vertically and horizontally but in three dimensions. And um, I, um, I don't have the answer. It is it, There isn't one set one. Um, all I know is it's an enormous amount of fun trying to find out. I like, I think what an answer though you definitely have, I think the sensitivity and the fact that it's always on, always live, and you always need to be, you know, there's, there's a certain sort of availability to this, you know, that you're talking about here. And I remember you telling me about that, I think it's important to understand now that, you know, let's, your definition of creative industries is not bearded hipsters selling coffee. It is not another, no. uh, it, it, it's, it, it's not selling honey off the top of a rooftop. So I think your, your definition of that is important. I think also then your sensitivity to what we, micro enterprise and the fact that we all, to some extent, are involved in, you know, the, 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 this story. And tell us a bit about that, because I think the sophistication of the way you define that, I find, yeah, really helpful. Well, it's very, very tempting to... Uh think that every creative industry is run by mainly white people, mainly young, uh, mainly bearded, gender non-specific, um, and they have a certain style and way of working. Um, it's such a, it's too easy and it's too simple and it's not right. In actual fact, what we're actually doing is blanding 
completely blanding out our real authenticity. Like we're actually disregarding um, some of the sometimes really confronting but really interesting um, places where creativity blossoms. Now, I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the, the most popular places to live in, even in London or even in Melbourne particularly, I can really point to like St Kilda. In the 1980s was the hotbed of methamphetamines and bad rock, you know, and, and it was it was where university students gathered and was just, you know, a microcosm of just raucousness. Um, very quickly, you know, in an attempt to try and sell the, you know, be part of the lifestyle, the, the property market sort of grabs onto that and sucks the actual creativity out in a desperate attempt to be part of the creativity. So it eats itself. And so my feeling, and I'm constantly battling this inside Ballarat as well, because um, being a regional country city, uh, we are um, we struggle with what I call Ballarat cringe. We actually cringe at the things that we've created ourselves because they're, they're not quite good enough. They're not like Melbourne. They're not like our neighbours in Bendigo. And someone in Geelong is doing that 10 times better, or are they? They're not really. Where um, Bridge Mall is so fascinating is it is our St Kilda. It is actually a, a place of various levels of um, disrespect, uh, young people playing up, uh, you've got methamphetamine use, you've got various you know, issues around poverty and poor education and poor health. And yet, because, in spite or because, who knows, there is this gem of something real and it's so tempting to squash that and design it away because you're trying to do something that's cool um, and you end up blanding. And that is a danger, I think, for every Western city because in actual fact we all end up looking like stock shots out of a Getty image catalogue where, you know, you've got everyone laughing at their coffee. And I just don't see that for our city. I actually understand that um, the people who make it up are the ones who've got a weird nerdy-like fixation on gold rush history or could burn your ear off about how to make a good sock you know, this is these are nerds. Like the world should be run by nerds because that is where the true authenticity of people who are passionate about a particular thing and have gotten so far inside that thing that they understand it and they want to share it with you. Those are the people we need, not the hipster, because the hipster's generally interested in a sun flare and when they can get the gold, good golden hour selfie shot. They're not interested in the actual finer detail of stuff. So our challenge is, particularly in Bridge Mall, it's got all of the layers of history, all of these incredible, and what I've spent a lot of time, particularly with your team, is actually going, don't throw away what looks innocuous. Keep mm. it, examine it, and talk to the person who loves it, who loves that bit of innocuous corner, who absolutely is so passionate about that particular street or, you know, that did you know that those, I was having this conversation today about the fact that, you know, those bricks that you get in pavers have got names on them? You know, you, you, would, you buy one as a fundraiser sometimes, you know, it was done in the 80s a lot, you know. These things are hideous. but And we've got 1,600 of them inside the bridge mall okay. and every single one of them has a family name on them so they are a hot issue with regards to public relations 
you can't get rid of them because of that point. But there was a conversation today about, well, no, they're really ugly. I don't. I want to get rid of them, said a few people. And some of our actual architects have also been advocating for the removal of them. Um, but you then need to just peel this apart a little bit to understand that Ballarat sits on is a, is sits on a bay uh, a bank of clay. That's who we are. We actually that's where the gold comes from. We you know that is our bedrock. We are on clay. Now, one of the things that comes from clay is bricks, and we were one of the leading brick companies. Selkirk's Bricks was based and established in Ballarat. First off, actually not with bricks, they were actually making flagons to hold port in, but hey, you know, they started making clay vessels and then they moved into bricks and they still exist. And that Selkirk's produced all the 1600 bricks. So there's a direct connection. And I find that weird little, you know, mm. you've unfolded and there's yeah. the story. And so therefore you cannot remove those bricks as ugly as they are. They they got to go somewhere. I couldn't agree more. And the thing is that, you know, we I think where designers often go wrong is that they look for the stories of consistency and coherency, whereas actually the experiencing human, you know, what we want is we want richness of experience, not sort of simplicity or conciseness of experience. We enjoy the mess, you know, yeah, as long as it's not too threatening, then the joy of, you know, twists and turns in every corner, you know, different materials, different stories, and the fact it's coming and going in time. That's why we're drawn to markets and festivals. They're incoherent, and that's what's so liberating about it. And I say, particularly something like Bridge Mall, where I note that there are elements of it that are, you know, they're not, you know, it's not dramatically exciting and simple and, I don't know, considered architecture. And in many ways, that's the most important bit. If you lost the mess, people wouldn't love it so much, would they? I think that um, you can you can love anything. So you can, you'll have, find somebody who's passionate about the very restrained, hyper-designed environments and you know you you can see the minimalist you can see the minimalist trends everywhere and you'll find the nerd who's absolutely just binges on that that issue uh, and that's absolutely fine but I think that what we've I suppose lost in the last couple of generations is this appreciation of the organic tumbleweed formation mm. of cities and how they how they originated they were organic nobody like they were goat tracks that then became well they were walking tracks or goat tracks that then became walking paths that then became tow paths that then became roads that and they became that that way because of tumbleweed nature um mm. but then you know you could look at paris and you can actually also look at um, ballarat and probably slightly different but but the same idea of actually taking the designed approach and like you know putting formulaic approaches and very sort of perpendicular roads and lots of lovely right angles and there's a sense of control in that there's a sense of regaining something there's a sense of kind of like we are on top of this yeah. and Ballarat has that on yeah the west side on the west side but on the east side where goat tracks and old tent pegs and yeah. just chaos and Bridge Mall is the cross between those two worlds. And we need to appreciate that moment, like the way chaos and calm kind of collided. Uh, and so anything we do, we have an, an enormous responsibility to respond to this moment in time 
reflect and appreciate the history of everything that went before. Uh, try and unpick all of the the previous unread, unspoken histories, which you know around migrants and racism and abuse and poverty and poor health and the way we treated our First Nations. So there's an enormous responsibility in this one location. But if we do it with an open heart and we actually do it with this kind of sense of, well, every answer is right. So if we can all at least find some sort of middle common ground that everyone's complicit in the final solution as much as possible in the final design program, everyone's complicit, then isn't that the best way forward? Because that's how it was done before. Yeah. So if everybody is complicit then, and how does one make sure that when you're not around, that there is this, how do we keep the bastards honest, which was your phrase when we spoke before? What is that? Because is it a vision document? Is it a PDF? Is it, a, is it, is it culture? Is it, well, what are we talking about here? How do you do that? Or do we not know? Should we come back in 10 years' time? And no, see I don't that? think there's, I, I think it comes down to, um, raising people to understand that they have a perfect right to have a voice um, mm. and that they're encouraged to meet and they're encouraged to share and they're encouraged to um, create together. They're encouraged yeah. to see that actually this is one of the few places on earth really that you can create and make and do and it can actually make a difference to a community. I'm not a trained public servant. I'm just an enthusiastic amateur who gets off on everyone else's passion and interest in various things and helps facilitate that kind of door opening. Um, yeah, look, we're always going to run the risk of being jettisoned by politics or social media waves and viral things, you know, tend to be harnessed to engage people to act in certain ways. Um, I think it's having just that moment of stillness and saying we should be talking about this and leaving our ego at the door and going I don't know the answer to everything but this feels right to me does it feel right to you so I was very esoteric very quick so it didn't it's not very functional um but yeah keeping the keeping the bastards honest is actually having groups of people who are interested in really important things to them so activist groups organizations that are involved in sustainability or climate change or first nations interests or artist groups um, or musicians unions um, these are really important because yeah. they're the ones who are speaking on behalf of communities and they are the ones who can talk with authority and they're the ones who need to be at the table and councils particularly local councils um, need good healthy advocacy groups healthy ones mind healthy um, to keep them accountable uh, and yeah, I I need them. I absolutely need them in the arts and creative industry sector to keep me accountable, to keep yeah. my council accountable. So it's, it's that constant feedback loop, isn't it? So you're 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 gathering, but you're also ensuring that those various associations they're communicating back and forth. And so it's an open dialogue constantly. That you're, so if we were to learn from this particular project, I mean that kind of framework for participation for dialogue, which is not so much a, a written down thing, but it is with your behaviour, you are then you, you you are demonstrating it every day, and you're I suppose inspiring others to be doing the same but it's very much stepping forward isn't it I mean it's very outward what you speak of here it it does require bravery and it requires um leadership of our local government 
to oh, and the state government, all of the governments, you know, they need to have a, a very strong and positive sense of leadership to feel confident that um, that they can actually think and dream big. And it's very tempting sometimes not to. Um, you mentioned before having a PDF, and I was a bit I scoffed, but actually, in actual fact, having um, designing creative city strategies that are accountable not just to what council's going to do and the and but also making recommendations as to how state government might support us or how you as a local practitioner might get involved like 360 degree strategies that actually consider every or as many different players as possible well that was actually um a complete milestone for our city um the development of a creative city strategy that put us on like which essentially boils down to we want to be the city of the sustainable practitioner. And, by, you know, we have had this discussion before about what sustainability means for a practitioner and what a practitioner is. I mean, it could be a microenterprise. You could be working quietly at your desk, doing your own thing in after hours, or you could be running a business of up to 50 people or more. Um, so identifying who the practitioners are, identifying what sustainability means to them, and then ensuring that we as a city are trying to help practitioners identify their sustainability and support them to grow. Yeah. Because as we see this cultural shift happening, it's been fast-tracked particularly by, by the pandemics, but, you know, it's the end of days, hopefully, for neoliberalism, capitalism. Um, it's going to be the resilient micro-enterprise, creative builder of ideas, that's our new gold scene, you know, whereas before we were digging stuff up out of the ground, today we need to nurture this gold maker, like the person who is actually dreaming up something new. Because the the production of widgets can now be done in an instant in a, um, in a repressed, uh, underdeveloped location of the world with people who are not being paid accordingly and everything looks the same and it can be shipped to you with under an hour you know uh, where the where our um advantage is is in our creative capital yeah. uh, and our creative capital we must nurture the creative capital we must nurture the idea makers the idea creators the, the people from whom the spark originates because behind that widget that is being produced at 10,000 an hour and dispatched via Amazon to your door within an instant. At the very core of it, there was a creative maker who came up with that idea. So that's where they come from. So we need to actually take care of them. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's beautiful. And I think that the thought of the, that new gold seam and that first spark I, I really get that. And I get that also in terms of, you know, your body language, because also this will be possibly an audio podcast. So I think the like the way you speak of it as a 360 degrees and we talk about all the channels, all the participants, all the players, all the touch points, which is, you know, moving our arms, you know, boldly and in a big expansive movement. But then you're also speaking about supporting the prototype and the idea that you're encouraging your council to plan long term, but start now, because also that's the other risk that it's a bigness of thought, but also it's fast moving and constantly live and needs to pivot with each day. And I think that feels like a, a very big thought in the way this is being managed it's you know there's big thinking in terms of 360 degrees but it's absolutely live and on the terms of those little sparks 
And I find that, 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 that really connects with me, that thought. It's difficult in as much as like, you know, your, your dedication has to be to the detail. It actually has to be to the tracking. Uh, and that's where, you know, I trained as an economist. So I get very excited by the data point. And every data point is a person and every person is a need and you unfold it limitless times. But where my job is to essentially, um, it, is, it essentially is to track those data points and then to translate that data point. So I can then translate to people who don't speak this language. I have a duty to um, communicate the need of the practitioner who today gave me a call, said I'm ready for my own shop. She paints pots, like she just beautifully paints them and sells them and that's her, that's her business. So, you know, my bosses will understand, well, she's painting pots and there's only one of her. So she doesn't really play a big role in the, in the scheme of the economic powerhouse that is the city. But I beg to differ if you take Bridget, the, the pot painter, and you extrapolate her out to all the other little tiny dots of people who are doing that kind of thing, and then you turn that into data that can actually be spoken about. That's where my power lies in becoming an advocate for that group of people. So as much as I need external advocates to keep me honest, to keep me on track and to help me convince my higher ups that things need to be done, I have the responsibility to advocate on behalf of all these data points and to turn it into a form of language that my neo-capitalist overlords <laughs> can, can appreciate and love because no, nobody likes it better than they can distill this down to, did you know that, you know, the creative industries, as far as we're aware at this point in time, probably equate to around about 6% of Ballarat's total um, total employment. And that becomes starts becoming powerful. You know, that equals X number of dollars. It equals Y number of people. Um, but we're interested in interrogating it even further because, you know, how, how do you decide who's in the creative industries? How do you decide, you know, what proportion of your income is coming from the creative industries? And so I'm really interested in, in that sort of packaging because I actually think, um, like, sports have done it for centuries, being able to show their merit and their worth. And so many other industries have been able to do it, you know, to actually demonstrate how powerful they are. The arts and creative industries are a little bit behind on it. Um, and I'm kind of keen to. And also, I mean, that connects with that, you know, that new gold seam you speak of, you know, we even though, you know, 6% is a significant amount. I think also that particular story that you're speaking of that is how brands you know if we think about a purchase funnel you know the, the first piece of how we take a wider group and go from awareness to interest is often because of those spark-like conversations if one is thinking to kind of a, a city as a brand it is these stories that, that are the stories that help reposition a brand and do you see in terms of your neo neoliberal uh, neo-capitalist even overlord are they is there an interest in how this project helps with the positioning of Ballarat and how it thinks about I suppose you spoke about flight at the beginning I suppose which is I suppose two ways one is losing you know the, the, those kind of you know younger the younger audience to to those bigger cities but also the other one is uh, attracting people back to is this project about that too is that a particular success point for you 
Um, well, it has accidentally become so. I think, um, you know, and having these internal conversations is one thing that um, the city of Ballarat's very good at is actually, you know, stopping and asking itself, who are we and what makes us us? And uh, we have things like what we call our prosperity framework, where we, we go out and spend two years talking to the people who made up the community at that point in time. And we we, we ask that question, you know, the, who, what makes Ballarat Ballarat? You know, how does, and, and that, that interrogation helps spark, as you say, you know, people can latch on to things like, well, they latch very quickly onto we're a heritage city. Well, we're very clearly a heritage city. All you've got to do is look at us and, say that you know we're, we're, we're beautiful and it's, it's glorious to look at and just gorgeous postcards um but the second thing they'll say is that we're an arts and culture hub you know that we're keen on being seen as that that's what we do we're a creative city um and i i find that so rewarding because it's a, it's it's easy to to think that oh you know this is all the stuff i'm doing is just you know a lot of people will just wave, wave their hand at it and say, oh, well, you know, that, the arts, that's just the nice to have, isn't it? Where when you start hearing it back from your own community, our own community is articulating it. So it's actually quite easy for the city to then turn around and say, um, that is the thing that we want to hold on to, to define who we are, because that's what our community has told us, um, you know, about the city that they want to have. Um, and so a lot of work has been done in that building of the, and I, and I don't think brand was never probably the right place that started from. Again, it was this kind of accidental, lovely sort of um, blindly walking into walls and coming back away from the wall. It was no conscious process around we want to develop a city brand. It was we just want to know who we are. So there was this lovely, genuine nature about it rather than going you know what kind of font are we going to do it in is it going to be helvetica with a slight kerning you know it was none of that you know that sort of arch self-awareness there was this sense of genuine author again that back to that authenticity um another word that's been well and truly abused and um i I think that's actually what then inspired, sparked our, what we call our traveller experience plan. It's one of the perfect examples of how when our marketing and our tourism teams sat down and sort of said, we want to market who Ballarat is, um, they were informed by that. So they were informed by the, you know, that the, the traveller wants to know, and a visitor who wants to come here, what are the things a Ballarat resident wants to most proudly show them? And it is, look at this beautiful city. Isn't it incredible because of the, the wealth that, that it had um, and the facades that we've now been entrusted with and the, the buildings we've got? Um, and come and experience our creative life. And those two elements are the two lead pillars under now our traveller experience plan. Um, constant tension, though, at the same time when you apply that because creativity, you know, for some people it's an obstacle. But yeah. for others, you know, they have a freedom in it. So yeah, it's it's never straightforward. But I'm um, I'm heartened by the fact that you know I can say the words contemporising our heritage, which is one of the pillars, and the, uh, being a creative city being the other pillar, and you know that's Ballarat.
Well, I, I, Tara, I love it. I, I think, and the way you speak about it is so incredibly clear. And I think this, you know, so many creative city conversations, as you say, are vanilla. They are merely a label. But what you're speaking about is action. It is, you know, it is, it is the lived experience. And I think that means that, yeah, I think it's a thing, therefore, that will grow and grow and why it's a wonderful precedent for, you know, I think people listening to this that, you know, it is demonstrated with every single action and each one of those first spark conversations is a thing to nurture and it grows from there. And I love your point of from the data, the data point to the person, to the need, to the theme, to the advocacy, to the growth of this brand in action. You know, the creative life writ large is just brilliant. So Tara, thank you so much. Is so much here. It's been a joy to speak to you. It should be many hours, and I greatly look forward to being in Ballarat one day when we're all allowed out. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you very much. It's been an, an honour to be able to chat to you about these things, and I think I wouldn't be saying that Ballarat has got it nailed, though. That's the other thing, too. It's work in progress. It is a work in progress, but every location has the capacity to do the same thing they just need to care about it and I think you just got to spend enough time being interested in what other people are interested in thank you for listening to the free thinking podcast today do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better thank you and see you soon